This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Luke chapter 22, and um, there are several different places we'll be plugging into. And for those of you that are extra smart, and that's all of you because if you come to this church, you're extra smart. Um, but you see in your sermon notes, Ezekiel, I wasn't very smart this week, and that's actually Jeremiah. I was working on two different studies, and so I got the Ezekiel at the wrong place, and we'll be actually looking at Jeremiah. We are continuing our series entitled Rediscovering Jesus, and and I was trying to figure up without actually just looking at my files, but I believe that uh, this is sermon number seven, lesson number seven in our series, and I'm thinking that we'll probably have a couple more lessons um, and then move on, but then again, why do I know? I'm just trying to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Last week we followed Jesus and His disciples as they joined the masses who were going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Every road was packed. Everyone was moving in the same direction. Uh, The hotels were full. There was a waiting line at every eating establishment. Thousands and thousands of people were headed to Jerusalem to remember 1,500 years prior when God, Jehovah, had delivered the Israelites out of the hand of Pharaoh. Well, when Jesus and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem, they go to a place that we now refer to as the upper room. And if you've been in Israel, you've probably gone to what they believe was the place where they spent that Passover meal. It was a place that somehow had escaped the watchful eye of the spies that the Pharisees had commissioned to tail Jesus. And so this was right before the crucifixion, and it was just Jesus and the disciples. Last week we talked about how during the Passover meal, Jesus did something really unusual and and he blew their minds. He washed the feet of the disciples. And through that he was saying that if I, as your leader, am willing to take on the role of a servant and wash your dirty and smelly and dust-covered feet, then that takes away any excuse that you or anybody else as a powerful or influential person might use to keep from serving others. And then we basically ended up summarizing things in in Cedar County language by saying that if you ever get to feeling pretty important and feel that you have too high of a position and you're too good to get your hands dirty and think that you can just put a check in the offering and pay someone else to do the serving, then don't get mad here, but you're probably too big for your britches. And you need to go find some feet to wash. That went over like a lead balloon. As we jump into our lesson today, there was one more very disruptive and controversial statement that Jesus made during this Passover meal. Let's pick up our reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And he took bread. The bread was probably similar to our crackers today. He gave thanks. He broke it. So he snapped the bread in half. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Now, that statement probably jolted them a bit. And and, and probably they got this puzzled look on their faces and and looked at each other thinking, Did Jesus just say what I think he said? Did he just say, This is my body given for you? 
But Jesus wasn't finished. It got even more offensive. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, taking the bread was a tradition they had practiced all of their lives. And and again, this was in remembrance of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt 1,500 years ago. They celebrated and practiced this every year. They, They knew all about this tradition. But it appeared that Jesus was saying, hey, the meaning of this sacred practice was about to change. And, and now instead of it being in remembrance of leaving Egypt, Jesus was saying it would now be in remembrance of him. Now, for you Gentiles out there, and I think we're all Gentiles here, unless you've got a little bit of Jewish blood in you. But, but for, you, for you Gentiles, let, let me explain something to you because this is a bit foreign to us. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, everybody there, because they were full-fledged Jewish people, they were so offended, probably they were tempted to get up and walk out. Because this was like, okay, Jesus, you know, over the past three years, you've not only set yourself up above Moses, and and you sometimes even kind of dissed him, maybe, maybe respectfully, And you've been able to kind of slide by without too many repercussions from that. But Jesus, now it looks like you're going against the sacred tradition of Passover. So so Jesus, look at us. Look look at us. You don't mess with Passover. Now you're popular. You're famous. But there's no way that you can make Passover about you. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Imagine this coming December that I would show up here at the church and say, Hey, church, we're moving into the Christmas season. And normally throughout December, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But this December, we're going to do something different. I've been at this church as your pastor for 25 years now. And so I want you to celebrate my birth. And even though I was actually born in September... And by the way, some scholars really believe that Jesus was born in September. It doesn't matter. We know he was born. But anyway, let's just say that I inform you that this year Christmas is going to be about me. And every weekend in December, we will have Advent readings about me. You know, the songs will be about me. The messages will be about me. And then on the last Sunday before Christmas, we'll put out a big comfy recliner here on the stage and I will park my carcass in this recliner and we'll have a kids program and they, and then you will come up and just talk about how great I am. And then we'll end up with a huge celebration in the form of a Joseph's Eve candlelight service. Now, if we did that, all of you would leave the church and you should. And really, if I ever or anyone else ever tries to become more popular and more famous than Jesus, you get out of this church as fast as you can because something terrible has happened. But here's my point. Jesus was basically elevating himself above the biggest spiritual festival they had celebrated for the last 1,500 years. And so the disciples were stunned when, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of him. And, and they were probably thinking, Jesus, you're great and all of that, but you can't make Passover about you. So they probably ate their meal in silence, wondering if this whole triumphal entry thing, Hosanna, Hosanna, all of that, if that had gone to his head. But Jesus wasn't finished yet. 
Verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup. Now, that they could have said, Master, you don't need to explain the cup. You know, we know what the cup represents. We, we, we have that 1,500-year-old script and tradition embedded in our minds where our forefathers had to slaughter a spotless lamb and put blood over the doorposts and the death angel passed over them. And so the cup represents the blood that was shed by animals the night that our ancestors left Egypt. But Jesus goes on and say, says, this cup is the new covenant, not a new covenant. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, if, if the disciples that were listening that day would have paid attention in Sunday school class or, or whatever class they had back then, that they should have remembered that the prophet Jeremiah, 650 years before this moment, had predicted the day that God would establish this new covenant. Here's what Jeremiah said 650 years prior. 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So the covenant that was established when Moses came down uh, you know, from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and that led to all of the rituals and the rules and, and the I will if you will and if you don't I won't. Jeremiah said this new covenant is going to be totally different than that old covenant. What would be the difference? Well, Jeremiah answers that. Verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So Jeremiah was saying that the new covenant that was promised 650 years later would be a covenant of conscience. Now, let me hit the pause button on Jesus and the disciples. And for a few moments, I want to talk to you about ancient covenants. And I know initially this may come across as unnecessary and maybe even boring, but, but, but personally... You want to know my opinion? Let me give it to you. I think it's necessary. And I think it's fascinating. And I promise that this will tie in with our lesson in about 10 minutes. So you need to stay connected, stay dialed in. During the Old Testament period, and even extending on into the New Testament, there were essentially three types of covenants or treaties that dominated the ancient landscape. The first kind of covenant was what was called a bilateral and and you know the word bilateral, it just means, you know, involving two parties or two sides. But there was a bilateral parity treaty. And, and this bilateral parity treaty was a covenant or an agreement between two parties, two equals. It was basically an I will if you will, if you don't, I won't. And if I don't, then you won't. It, it was similar to most business agreements today. So if you've ever been involved in, in, in a business agreement, this is probably what your business agreement is, a, a bilateral parity treaty. Now, the second type of treaty was what was called, and, and you probably haven't heard of this, and, and I hadn't until I actually started studying this, bilateral suzerainty treaty. Now, suzerain, and you can look this up just like I did, but was like a king or a powerful leader. And the way this treaty worked is that the suzerain or the king or the authority would dictate the terms and the conditions to a lesser power who didn't have much choice in the matter. Maybe a good way to understand, uh, illustrate this would be like this. 
Son, this is my car. You understand that? Yes, Dad. Son, I'm going to let you drive my car. But here's what I expect. I expect you to drive my car the speed limit. Do you understand that, son? Yes, Dad. And son, you know I'm really picky about my cars. And so I expect you to park my car away from everybody else so you don't get any dings on it. Do you understand that? Yes, Dad. And then I expect you to be home at 10 o'clock sharp. Uh, what, what time did I say? Say it out loud. 10 o'clock. Okay, here are the keys to my car. But if you get caught speeding, if there are any dings on my doors, if you don't get home by 10 o'clock tonight, you can kiss this privilege goodbye. Son, do you understand the terms and the conditions? Yes, Dad. So in this case, the child doesn't make the rules. The dad does because the dad is the suzerain. He's the greater power. And all the son can say is, Thank you, Dad. You're so good to me. Fair enough. You can be sure I'll go by your rules. That's how the treaty worked. And God's relationship with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a bilateral suzerain treaty. And, and you know some of the rules that are outlined at the end of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and, and uh, most of Deuteronomy. But God basically said, you know, you keep my rules and don't worship any other gods, etc., etc. I'll make your crops grow. You'll be victorious in war. And, but, but if you don't keep my rules, you're on your own. Now, it's really easy for us to be critical of this covenant that God had with Israel. I mean, if you read through parts of Exodus and, and uh, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy there, I, I, I mean, it's easy to say, this is nuts. And as Gentiles, it may appear that way to us, but understand that all of this was important because God was establishing a nation. He was, he was establishing a civilization. He was try, trying to build within them a code of ethics. And so all of it was important. And by the way, and this is being circulated right now by some very prominent pastors, but if you ever hear any pastor say that we don't need the Old Testament, you can scrap it. You need to dismiss them really fast. Because the Old Testament, even some of the confusing stuff, has great significance. And it points to Jesus. But anyway, in the Old Covenant, Israel had a history that was up and down. They were faithful to God. They'd be unfaithful. God would pull his protective covering. They would repent. They would come back to God, and then they would get careless again. And, and something that I found really interesting is that at one point, God actually put the whole nation, in, and, and you parents, you can appreciate this, God put the whole nation of Israel in time out. And in fact, that's where I think the concept of time out started. You know, God said, okay, we got an agreement. I warned you, you broke your part of the agreement. So here's what God did. He took the leaders of Israel, put them in Babylon for a 70-year timeout. When they learned their lesson, allowed them to come back into the land. So this was a suzerainty treaty. I'm the king. You're the subjects. Here are my demands. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you don't obey, you'll be punished. Pretty straightforward. But there was a third type of treaty. 
that was common in ancient times. And it was called a promissory covenant. And this was not bilateral. It was not, I will if you will, or if you don't, I won't. It was unilateral. And the best way to understand this is to think of your late elementary school days. For some of us, that was a long time ago. Or maybe even our early middle school days. You know, you, uh, you either wrote the note or you got the note. Or a friend of yours wrote the note or got the note. And the note went something like this. I love you. And I will love you forever. You will always be my true love. You know, an eight-year-old. And even though your family is moving to New York City, I'm still going to love you forever and ever and ever. You know, there was nothing of I'll love you if. It was just, I will always love you. Now, don't get upset at me here, but, but if you had an elementary or middle school crush on someone... you probably did not ratify it by taking the neighbor's cat and slicing it in half. And don't get mad at me. I walk out on me here. And, and I told my wife about this, and she just about threw me out of the house. So you all just need to chill. And, honey, you just need to chill for a little bit here. But let me give you a greater understanding of ancient covenants. In ancient covenants that were of major consequence, they were all pretty much ratified the same way. Something had to die. And what they would generally do is, is take an animal and the type of animal would be determined by how wealthy the parties were. Sometimes it would be one animal. Sometimes it would be multiple animals. But they would take an animal. Here's what they would do. They would literally slice the animal right down the middle and lay it open. And then each party making the covenant uh, would walk between the halves of the dead animal. And in fact, from my understanding, the statement, you know, we're going to cut a deal comes from this practice. And also from a Hebrew word that literally means cutting a covenant. But anyway, as both parties would walk through the halves of the dead animal, they were saying, may it be unto me as it was to this most unfortunate animal if I violate the terms of the covenant. And so if you're thinking, whoa, this is serious stuff. It was serious stuff because if you broke a bilateral covenant, you were basically saying, this is what you can do to me. You can slice me in half. Okay, back to this promissory covenant. And this is super important. In a promissory covenant, only one person made a promise. And so in this type of covenant, they would slice the animal open. But instead of both parties walking between, only one party would walk between. Walk between. Why? Because only one party in the covenant was making a promise. It was all on them. Now, now here's the most fascinating thing of all. Um, if you think that I, uh, I just dreamed this up to spice up my message a little bit, and I know they say that movies need a little bit of blood and gore to sell. And so if you think that that's what I did just to get my, uh, to illustrate my message here and to get your attention, l- let me, um, let me set the record straight and maybe give myself just a little bit of credibility and say that the Bible documents this practice. When God appeared to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then I'm going to bless the entire world through through that nation. They ratified that agreement with the sacrifice of an animal. And and I don't want to take a lot of time here, but but I want to read this to you from Genesis. And, and again, this was after God called Abraham to leave a place called Ur of the Chaldees 
And once again, this will tie in with our lesson. Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Here it is. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. Birds, however, did not cut in half and etc. drove them away. So we get a little glimpse from the Bible that shows us how ancient treaties or covenants were ratified. Now, remember, I, I said everything in the Old Testament was important, even strange scriptures like this. So keep this practice in mind as we leave our detour and come back to Jesus and the disciples. That night at the Passover meal, Jesus was explaining the new covenant as he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In other words, Jesus was saying in order to launch this new covenant, I'm going to play the role of the animal that is to be sacrificed. To which the disciples might have thought, oh, okay, Jesus, that's horrible. That, that's terrible. That's uh, unthinkable. But, but if that's the way it's got to be, if you have to die, uh, okay, so be it. But what's our part? If you've got to die, what's our part in this new covenant? But Jesus was trying to get across that he had come to establish a unilateral covenant where the giving was all on him and the receiving was all on them. Matthew's account adds some extra meaning. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28 says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And, and maybe the disciples, they were confused. They scratched their heads and they said, Jesus, are you saying that from now on, whenever we take the cup, we're no longer remembering the blood that was sprinkled above the doors as we were getting ready to leave Egypt. Rather, we're going to be remembering your blood? And, and, and your blood is going to be used for the forgiveness of sins? Master, Jesus, Lord, that's so different. Our whole lives when we would sin, we would take an animal and go to the temple and the priests and the Levites would sacrifice that animal. That's the way we would get forgiveness of sins. But now you're talking as if you are the animal that brings the forgiveness of sins. Is that what you're saying, Lord? And maybe before Jesus could answer, they blurted out and one more thing, Jesus, we're so confused. You know, even if what you're saying is true, that your blood will bring about forgiveness of sins. Master, you can only spill your blood once. You can only die once. So, so that would be forgiveness of sins for one person only. You know, when we took a, an animal for a sacrifice, took it to the temple, to the priests and the Levites and that, that, that took care of the sins of one person. Each person had to bring a sacrifice. So, so if you are a sacrifice for sin, that will take care of one person. What about the rest of us? Are we doomed forever? 
But they should have remembered back because on day one and in the first lesson of this series, we talked about Jesus stepping onto the pages of history as an adult and, and, and John the Baptist looking three years ahead to this very moment. He told the crowd that gathered there on the banks of the Jordan River, he said, look, the Lamb of God who single-handedly, all by himself, unilaterally will take away the sin of the world. Remember that Greek word take away means to lift up and carry away the sin of the world. Well, within a few hours, this new covenant and His blood for the forgiveness of your sin and my sin and the sin of the entire world would be officially ratified with Roman nails on a Roman cross. It was a promissory covenant where only one party in the relationship, and it was Jesus, God's Son, would inaugurate this covenant. And so you ask, well, Joe, are there terms and conditions in this covenant? Well, in a sense, no, that there are no terms like the terms of the old covenant. Uh, Jesus paid it all. But in a sense, yes, there are terms. And I think that the Apostle John would help us understand this. And if we would go to John and say, John, you know, what's my part in the deal? I think John, who that night celebrating the Passover meal, was probably as confused as everybody else. John, who watched Jesus die. John, who went up to Jesus' mother and put his arms around her and tried to comfort her. John, who peered into an empty tomb. And, and John, who had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. And, and John, who eventually gave his life for the cause of Christ. But I think if we would have gone up to John and said, John, you know, what's the deal? What's my, my part of the deal? I, I think he would say... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But I think that John would add more, one more thing. and I, I, I believe he would quote what today we know as 1 John 1, 9 and, and he would say, actually, you know what? Here are the terms. Remember that great scripture that says, if we confess our sins. By the way, that's the terms right there. If we confess our sin. And then that's our part. What's God's part? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then if we would go out to Peter, I think Peter would help us understand this as well and I think he would have even simplified it more and he would take us back to the moment when Jesus said, let's go fishing. And, and Peter was like, hey, Master, we've already fished all night, gotten skunked. Jesus, you're probably a good carpenter, but you don't know too much about fishing. And, but Peter obeyed. You remember they caught so many fish, didn't know what to do with them all. And Peter fell at Jesus' feet and said, I don't know exactly who you are, but I'm not worthy to be in the same boat as you. And, and Jesus just smiled and said, well, Peter, you may not know all about me, but I do know all about you. I know about your past. I know about your mess-ups, your hang-ups. 
I know all about your sin. I know about your bad attitudes. I know all about your quick tongue. I know all about you. But Peter, Peter, all I'm asking you to do is this. Just follow me. And that right there is the invitation to the new covenant. That right there is the invitation to salvation. It's not follow the rules. It's not follow the traditions. It's not, you know, clean up the outside first. Be a good boy. Be a good girl so you can do this. It's confess your sins and follow Jesus. And this morning, if you haven't done that, there's no better opportunity to do so right now. So here's what we want to do to wrap up our service. In just a moment, we're going to partake of communion. But, but before we do so, I just happen to wonder if there aren't some people here that you need to do that right there. You need to confess and follow Jesus. You say, well, pastor, I'm just a bad boy or bad girl and I've done too many things and You know what? You're finally a candidate then by admitting that you're finally a candidate to receiving Christ. Because as long as you say, well, I'm I'm just as good as so-and-so, you're not a candidate to be saved. You're going to die and go to hell. But whenever we come to the point of saying, you know what? I am a miserable sinner. I can't, I can't control what I do. And I'm so lost and I'm a mess and undone. Whenever we come to that point, that's when we are a candidate to receive the salvation that Jesus offers us. And so maybe this morning there's someone that hasn't done that. Understand it's a lot more than baptism. Understand it's a lot more than just checking the box. Understand it's a lot more than just a decision. But it's confess your sins and then follow Jesus with all of your heart. And so here's what we want to do. We want to have a time of prayer. And I want you to ask God to search your heart. And maybe you need to confess. Not to me. Not to your neighbor. Confess to Jesus. And then just follow Him. Could we just still our hearts for a moment here? Father, I want to just thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this uh, promissory covenant that was unilateral to where you, you came in and said, I love you so much, I'm going to do all of the work for you. I'm going to do the heavy lifting. Jesus, thank you that you, uh, you paid the price in full. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. So Lord, if there's anyone here, maybe a young person, maybe an adult, they haven't taken the step of confessing their sins. And and Lord, frankly, I think we've all confessed our sins because we've all felt guilt. And 
But Lord, I think one of the things that many of us have not done is we haven't followed Jesus. We've confessed and we confess and we confess and we confess, but we still want to follow ourselves or follow the world. Lord, I pray that there would be something different about it today to where as we confess that we would seriously want to follow Jesus with our life. Lord, I know that it's easy to be concerned about just the mess-ups, the hang-ups that we have. Lord, the mouth that we have, the attitudes that we have. And Lord, sometimes I think it's easy for us to just say, ah, I don't know if God really wants me because that's the way I am and I need to do better. But Lord, the truth is that if we just try to do better on our own, we'll never change because most of the changes that need to be made, they can only be done with the help of Jesus Christ. So Lord, if there's someone here that hasn't taken those steps of confessing, and following that right now, this very moment, they would confess their sins and they would follow you. And then, Lord, there may be some people that have strayed away from you. Some people who, they know what it was at one time to have a close relationship with you, but life took place. So, Lord, there are things in their lives right now that are not right, and and I pray that they would give those things to you as well that they would confess Lord I pray that right now that you would help us to be followers of Jesus Christ we would understand the relationship with you you did the heavy lifting you paid the price but Lord the terms and we've got to follow we've got to follow and I pray that you would just help us do that today I pray this in your name. Nobody looking. Eyes closed. Is there somebody here that would say, Pastor, God is really speaking to me today. Would you just pray for me? Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Pray for me today. Anybody else? Thank you. Oh, God, as we move into this time of communion, Lord, I do pray for those that raised hands and Lord would you do a work in their hearts but Lord as we move into this time of communion Lord we take the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken bruised beaten Lord would you give us a glimpse today of the suffering that was there Lord, as we take the cup today, it represents the blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so thank you, Lord, that we didn't all have to bring a bull or a ram or a dove to church today because you're the lamb of God that takes away, lifts up and carries away the sin of the world. Help us to understand what this means. So, Lord, I just pray that as we worship you through this time of communion, that you would be so, so near and dear to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
here this morning. We have uh, seven tables, some up front, some to the side, some at the back. I want this to be a worship experience. That was our dismissal prayer. I'm finished. But I want you just to worship the Lord. And just spend some time. And no, no visiting in here, please. But if you want to just sit there and pray a while, or if you want to come and get the communion elements, you want to, may want to kneel here and go back there. Let's not rush through this. I, I think what we do a lot of times with communion is, okay, it's my turn. Grab the bread and the juice. Eat it, drink it. I'm out of here. But... Let's not rush through this worship experience. So whenever you are ready, find one of the seven tables around and really pray over this. Meditate over this. And over the next few moments, let's just worship the Lord as we partake of communion together. Whenever you're ready, you may come and be served. And just whenever you are finished, whenever you feel like, You've worshipped enough, you're in the clear, you may just leave at that moment. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.